and this is what happens, it's often just stepping back and breathing for a minute, the answers and mysteries can sometimes come into better focus. And they can even sometimes be revealed. And that's what happened to me. Welcome to Driven By. I'm Sam Coates. On this show, I talk to people who have boldly blazed their own trail. I break down what drives them, the risks they take, what they've learned, what's most important to them, the ups and downs along the way, and I hope this helps you find what drives you. My guest this week is Sean Askinosi. You may know him from his company, Askinosi Chocolate, which was named by Forbes as one of the best 25 small companies in America, or being named by Oprah as one of the 15 guys who is saving the world. Askinosi Chocolate imports beans directly from Ecuador, the Philippines, and Tanzania to his factory in Springfield, Missouri, where they make their chocolate. In addition to this work, he has also written the book, Meaningful Work, founded Chocolate University, and co-founded the Grief Center. This is a great conversation that covers much more than just the story of Askinosi Chocolate. We cover finding joy, the threats of having a driven personality, relationships, experiencing clarity, a life of being inserted by doing, the discipline of sticking to your principles, and more. You can learn more about Sean at Askinosi.com. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hey, everybody. I'll just make this easy. Do you need insurance? Do you want another opinion about your insurance? Just go ahead and call Matt Haga with State Farm. It'll be easy. If you're thinking about it, just do it. We do have listeners to this show from all over the world. So this offers only for listeners in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Matt Haga State Farm offers auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance. Go to MattHaga.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-A-A-G-A.com and contact them. When you contact Matt, tell him I sent you. Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. Now we're going to get back to the show. Sean, great to see you. Likewise, great to see you. Curious, have you ever thought about leaving Springfield? Well, technically I, I have because I don't live in the city of Springfield anymore. Two years ago, my wife and I moved to a, a neighboring county. So my commute's about 25, 30 minutes. And um, so I live out in the sticks. And oddly enough, my grandparents were huge inspirations to me in starting my chocolate business about 14 years ago. 
and they have long since died, but they were farmers. They were very kind, patient, sweet people, good hearts, lived a very simple life on a small farm, lived on that farm, same place for over 65 years, married 65 years, same church for 65 years. Um, And they were just, their neighbors loved them and they loved their neighbors and they worked really hard, really hard milking cows, plowing the fields. And when I, I spent a lot of time there growing up and as a young person, I had zero appreciation for it. So, and I was a little jerk about it too. I didn't want to bale hay. I did not want to hoe the garden. I didn't, I didn't want to do any of that. I, they had one TV station. All I wanted to do was watch TV and eat, you know, Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries, which they would buy for me. And now I wish I could take that back. And I wish they knew how grateful I am for their, their model. I think, and I think they do know in some way, but I remember thinking as a kid, I will never live anywhere near this podunk place. And right now I am in the same zip code. I'm in the same telephone (laughs) prefix and I I live five minutes from where my grandparents' farm was. And so that's a very long answer to your question. But, and the other time I did, I did think about moving to Austin in 2009 and I was very close to pulling the trigger on that. And it ended up me not having enough confidence in the economy at that time to be willing to fly so close to the ground from a cash perspective. So I just didn't want to do that. I, I, but my, my wife is very debt averse and, you know, she loves Dave Ramsey and all that stuff. And me, I would borrow whatever you have in your pocket. And so um, because, but we, you know, I have honored her opinion about those matters and and it's kept us in good stead. And so, but it also means that I can't take advantage of opportunities like ones like that, you know, that, that come along, but it's certainly not a decision that I regret. You never know where these conversations go. You touched on something that I noted. So when you say opportunities, because you started your factory in 2005, right? The first chocolate bar was sold in 2007. I went on my first origin trip in 2005 and started trying to figure it out and buy equipment. Yeah, that took a couple of years. So then a couple of years after that, did somebody come to you? How how did that opportunity to Austin come after you had two years after selling your first chocolate bar? My wife went to school there. My wife's family lives in Texas. I first practiced law in Texas. And I'm even I'm from Missouri, but so I and so I was very familiar with it, and I had a law license there that I could reactivate. But I just really liked Austin. And during that time, I had um, I had what I refer to as line envy. And so what I mean by that is like, if you go to New York City or San Francisco and not now, but let's say last year and the previous years, there would be lines forming for people to buy stuff at shops, right? you know, like food places like cupcakes. I'm thinking in particular in New York and donuts and stuff. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm never going to have a line in Springfield, Missouri. (laughs) And the place that I am, I'm never, I don't, I'll never have a line in I haven't really, I mean, maybe during the holidays, <laughs> I don't have a line. And I thought, I want a line. So I thought, what t- what city can I go to that I'm familiar with, you know, that's not too far away. And so Austin was it. And I spent a lot of time looking at other places in Texas, but I mean, I was really close to doing it. Like selling building, buying a building, you know, whatever. Yes, yes, the whole thing. <laughs> and then believe me, moving a chocolate factory is not like moving your house. I mean, there's all kinds of plumbing and electrical and well, you can imagine given your 
career, um, how challenging that would be. Right. And so, but interestingly enough, my daughter, who is um, a co-owner in the business with me, she's our chief marketing officer, started working for me when she was 16. She and her husband live in Austin now and have for several years. And so my wife and I got a little place there uh, like a year ago or so. And uh, now, even during the pandemic, we're back and forth and back and forth all the time. Um, we kind of have our own little pod uh, because Lauren works from home. Her husband works from home. I do. And Lauren just had a baby in July. So her name is Goldie. And I, I Congratulations. mean, I'm, yeah, thank you. So, I mean, that experience as a grandfather has changed my life um, dramatically. So, yeah, but that, that opportunity was a very real opportunity. The money was available to me through the SBA. And I just, contrary to my nature, I did not want to take that risk. No, I'm glad I didn't now, really. Are you thinking about opening up a retail shop in Austin now? No. And keeping your factory? Yeah, no, I, I don't think so. One of the reasons I don't regret the move to Austin, it is really, 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 really hot in Austin. Like, I was just there in July and August. And I mean, it's too hot for chocolate. You can't <laughs> do it. So there's like three months you really literally could not sell chocolate in a retail store because the moment somebody walked out the door, it melt before they even got to their car. Mm. And, and that also presents all kinds of challenges for shipping and logistics. And so I really kind of lucked out because I didn't contemplate that as much as I should have back then. And now I, I like our little retail store. We have a storefront in Springfield and it's small. And, and of course it's closed. Now we have a walk-up window, but, our strategy is we, we've really deepened our efforts to move a lot online. We sell to about eight or 900 stores around the country, smaller specialty food stores. But a lot of our efforts now are in, in developing the e-commerce experience, just direct to consumer, which really is consistent with our philosophies of direct trade and working directly with farmers and staying small I mean, one of you haven't asked me, but I mean, we only have 17 full-time employees and that's about the number we've had for years. I don't want to really grow very much at all. Right. And I have some, some goals in terms of some goals in terms of top line growth. And, but really it has more to do with cash flow and debt reduction and pay for people and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm curious about when you were a criminal defense attorney, uh, I know you, your dad was Marine and from what I heard you you say on other either interviews or episodes or speeches that that's what you grew up knowing that you wanted to do was, you know, be an attorney. And I know you spent 20 years doing that. But I'm curious, was your heart for philanthropy, for equality, for example, for the, the chocolate experiential learning program that you have, for the, the um, grief center that you co-founded, for the equality and flourishment of the farmers that you work with. Did you see dots of that when you were an attorney or do you feel like that just turned on to a new level after you started your chocolate factory? I can trace the dots back to college. So I've, I have always had that kind of influence in my life and it really probably started with my parents. My dad as a lawyer was very socially active and started legal aid in our community. And I used to go with him when I was little, when he would just have me sit there and clients would line up and it was all free of charge. And my mom was active in the community and 
I told you before about my grandparents and the sort of mindset that they had about how hard they worked and how much they helped their neighbors and vice versa was really ingrained in me. And I think after my dad's death, like it or not, because I certainly didn't intend on this, but it really did exercise my compassion muscle uh, and not by choice. And, and so by the time I got to college, I was very um, moved by situations that would sort of come across my dashboard of sorrow, poverty, of pain and suffering. And the first real example I can think of right after law school, I'm practicing at a big firm in Texas at this time. And I started a literacy education program in Tarrant County in Fort Worth for people who were on probation. And young lawyers would volunteer their time to teach probationers how to read and write. And I started that literally the first year out of law school. So th that that's consistent with, and of course, during my law career, I did pro bono work and was active, you know, in my community. And so it's just, it, it's expressed differently now uh, than, than when I was a lawyer um, fighting for justice in those cases. And I also think that in many ways, I've, well, I've gotten older and hopefully I've learned to express that part of me in ways that I would not have been able to even comprehend as a younger person. So it's been there and you've just seen it escalate or maybe as you've been given more opportunity or more blessing, however you would want to define that, you've just been able to create more momentum with programs and initiatives that you've always cared about. Is that a fair way of saying it? I think it's a fair way of saying it. And I should also hasten to add that it's always been there. It's, it's always been there. And what has changed is, I think, my ability to recognize it. And then not just the ability to recognize it, or another way of putting it would be um, awareness. You know, once, once I have awareness of that part of me, then the next part is action and the willingness to try to do something about it, to try to take some kind of action. But the thing I want to be careful of for your listeners is you can also, that's a trap. And the trap is, especially for hard-driving entrepreneurs, for people who have a um, social justice, equality mindset. And what I mean is that if we're not careful, we fall into the trap of overwork and we tell ourselves for years that it's okay and we justify this overwork because we see that the end result is good. And I think that all of us, and me included, you know, need to be very, very careful about that because we tend over the years to say, well, I'm the only one who can do this. I guess I better do it. And then before you know it, our health suffers, our relationships suffer. And we still tell ourselves, even then, well, this is a good thing. You know, I'm, I'm doing these good things. And it becomes, it's, it's a much, much greater and more deceptive challenge than if you're doing a bad thing or if you're doing something that has no inherent virtue to it. You can easily say, oh, well, gosh, that's, that's not good. I guess I better stop. But when it's a good thing, it can destroy you. Right. This feels like to me, it might be a good place to talk about the monastery 
And I, I know you're a brother in the monastery close to where you live currently. Right. Assumption Abbey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Assumption Abbey. And you talked about the monk. Uh, what's it? Cyprian, Father yeah. Cyprian. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And I remember you telling that story that when you first came, you brought 20 books with you. And now when you, <laughs> yes. you don't bring any. Right. How do you incorporate those lessons or the teachings that you've learned, I assume, through the monastery into your daily rhythms to where you try to stay out of that trap that you just talked about? Well, I mean, one of them is just by staying connected to the monastery. And so now I can't go there, but I talk to Father Cyprian frequently uh, and Father Paul, who I also write about in the book. So, you know, some of it's just very practical. In one case, Father Cyprian, he doesn't do this very often, but I was getting ready to start or launch a new school lunch initiative for malnourished children in the Philippines. And Father Cyprian said, I... And in a very gentle way, he said, don't do it. Not as direct as I just put it, but he said, don't do it because you should wait until you conclude the first feeding program that you're working on in the Philippines and then go to the next one. And his reasoning was what I just said, which is that that it's a trap of doing. And Father Paul is the one who gave me this aspiration to live by, which is that he specifically felt for me, which is that I need to live a life of being inserted by doing, not a life of doing inserted by being. And that changed my life in in a very positive way. So I try, I said aspirational because I mean, I am, I will be aspiring to that notion for the rest of my life because I am so, you know, driven and it's part of my nature and personality but this um, idea of living a life of being inserted by doing, the first way that that came up in my life, and it came up through Father Paul, had to do with prayer. And so before this time, I, was, I would have a time of listening to scripture or music or whatever when I was doing something else, getting ready for work or driving to work. And I was just honest with him about it. This is when I was applying to be part of the Family Brother Program seven or eight years ago, or yeah, eight, eight years ago or so now. And he, he said, that's not going to cut it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, of course, very, I, you know, I wrote about it, and I, I was very articulate about it and, you know, approached it in pure lawyer fashion. And, um, and he said, that's not going to cut it. And, and what he said, and this, you would think, duh, and I'm sure your listeners will think that. And he just said, you know, pick a time and a time of day that's completely dedicated to this practice. Just, it doesn't have to be long, just do it. And I have, I have had a contemplative prayer practice since I first started going to the Abbey 21 years ago, but it was sporadic and it wasn't rhythmic. One of the things I'm not, I'm not Catholic, I'm Episcopalian, but, but one of the, one of the beautiful things about the daily office that is these seven prayer services a day is of course the content, but even maybe more importantly, the rhythm of this practice. And so as a lay person and a family brother or just, you know, anybody, could I commit to just one time in the day that is the place of my rhythm? And yes. And so I've been doing that for seven or eight years now in the mornings and I rarely change it up. 
And that that's the first most practical thing. And of course, um, one, one former monk that I am friends with often said, you know, that after he left the monastery, the goal was to bring the monastery with him, that the monastery would be in his heart. And this is a, you know, something otherwise known as integration. Right. And so that's the idea. The idea is not to have, you know, multiple peak experiences, you know, contemplative, meditative peak experiences when visiting the Abbey. The goal is to bring it with me and bring it into my daily life, into my business life. You know, so there are multiple instances where I can point to and say, okay, well, this thing that we do in business is directly connected to the monastery. You work with farmers in four different continents, correct? Three continents, but four origins. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how do you think about the internet? How do you think about email? How do you think about news? How do you think about text messages? How do you think about correspondence with your farmers that you have a lot of equity with relationally and operationally? How do you handle all the inflows that I've heard you talk somewhat about, but in a practical way on a day-to-day basis? Because I've also heard you talk about the power of solitude when you have clarity and you're alone with your thoughts and you're with God. But I'm curious how you handle the X's and O's of the work you do from a career standpoint when we have so many different inputs of information and requests, et cetera. Well, the, the first way is what I mentioned earlier, which is how I begin my morning. And that really, I, I think, sets the tone. Again, aspirationally, it sets the tone for my day and for how I'm going to be in the day. And, and I, I think that is really important. And from a practical standpoint, I don't have a really fancy methodology as to how I approach it, but I'm careful about it. And I'm careful in particular about social media. And I'm in a fortunate position where my company is on social media and it's handled by my daughter and someone else. And I don't have to do it and haven't had to do it for a long time. And uh, I'm grateful for that. And that has, you know, really been a big deal for me. Sometimes I will post things on Facebook, not very often. I'm not on Twitter, really haven't posted on Instagram in four years. It used to really um, pressure me when I was on origin trips Instagram itself, I mean, it's like a person, but it was pressuring me to do things, you know, and to, to not really be fully present with farmers and stuff. So it, it is, um, I think about this a lot, actually. And I, I think about it actually in the context of the way you asked it, which is this kind of ever-present technology and how that applies to the life and rhythm of a monastery, especially the Trappists, which are cloistered. You know, they're behind a cloister, a wall, essentially. They don't go out like the Jesuits do or the Franciscans do. They stay behind the cloister and pray, you know, seven times a day and work. So it's a, it's, it's a balance of aura et labora, prayer and work. And their work happens to be fruitcakes. And that's, they make enough fruitcakes to survive. And so I think about this this question a lot. And so in the context of how I think about it is I think about the future. So how will these ideas of community in a place of solitude and 
community in quotes, air quotes, in a place of social media, where will there be convergences that are authentic? And then where will there be divergences that are absolutely necessary in order to preserve, let's say, a community like the monastery? And I don't have an answer to it, but I do think about it. And my, my thought now, and has been for the last couple of years, that this idea of community that is reflected in a place like the Abbey is going to become a counter trend that will not die. It will not go away, despite the fact that it looks like it's dying right now. Because my Abbey, for example, there are only, I think, three Americans left in the monastery, and they're all in their 70s or 80s. And they gave the the 3,000 acres and their fruitcake business in the monastery to a Vietnamese group of monks who have come to live there. And it's been an amazing thing to watch them transition. But I bring this up because this is happening all over the United States in monasteries. And we find that they're growing in Africa and not growing in other places around the world, not in Europe. They are growing in Asia. And so what I think is going to happen is that there will be this death and rebirth of this kind of community. And I don't know what it will look like, but especially now, I think we've seen during the pandemic that there is a true hunger for community. Uh, It's always been there, but we can see it now more clearly than we could see it, say, 15 months ago. And like I said, I don't don't think this is going to be community in the sense that, you know, you and I have seen in terms of... um, communes, or I think it will become expressed in a different way, in a new way, perhaps, that is meaningful to to our modern culture. And uh, I'm excited about it. And I think that, you know, the rule of Benedict, which has governed monasteries for 1500 years, is alive and well. And I just think that it will begin to take new form. And I'm excited about it. That's really neat. And it just seems like it, it fits into other things as well, because of the way things are, things change, things don't continue exactly as they were, but they're reborn, or there's kind of an open-mindedness or a kindness, and then it, it continues on. The same foundation continues to drive the overall essence of truth that brought it up to this point, I guess. At least that's how yeah. I heard you describe it. That's what I think, yes. So I know you've talked, it was a five-year period transitioning from being a defense attorney to starting the Chocolate Factory which that's so applicable itself. But I've also heard you talk about how when you go to your pain, it helps you find your purpose, but you went to the hospital and you started serving and being with elderly people that were unfortunately dying, but you were loving on them, praying for them. But how did that experience of facing your sorrow, serving other people, how did that lead you to chocolate? The people that I visited in the hospital weren't just elderly. They were, they were not children, but they were dying. So they were part of the palliative care unit at the hospital, which is sort of like hospice in the hospital. But I didn't very often v- visit pediatric patients. But they could have been, you know, in their 20s or 30s or 50s or 60s or 80s. Or, but they were in oncology, neurology, cardiology, and just throughout the hospital. But they were essentially in some state of dying. And the reason that that connected with me is because uh, my dad died when I was 14 of lung cancer. And 
it was a terrible thing. And the way the church handled it was really bad, really, really, really bad. And, and I was with him when he died and I didn't think he was going to die. And the church said they would come over and pray for him. And it was very weird, but they would come over and tell me not to talk with my dad about death, because if I did, it would be a sign of doubt and he wouldn't be healed. And that was a lot for a 13 year old, Yeah, you know, 12, 13, 14 years. He died when I was 14. And so I carried that with me, you know, for a long time and didn't really try to make very much sense of it until, you know, I won all my cases. I didn't, I made a ton of money. I was a sought after lawyer that I could pick my own cases. And so that level of quote, and I really do mean quote success prompted me to start asking this question. Well, maybe I need to think about this hurt in my life, this sorrow, this heartbreak. And I did. And at the same time, I'm thinking I need to do something else. Didn't know what to do. And I was actually walking at the monastery one day. And this idea came to me to visit people in the hospital who were dying. And I did that and went through the training and all of that. And so when I would meet with those patients and, you know, have a conversation with them about really nothing, and then I would end by asking them if they wanted me to pray for them. And that's where the conversation really deepened. And sometimes I'd read to them or just, but I prayed, I'd ask them what they wanted me to pray for. And that was the real turning point because nobody ever did that for my dad or me, or it was always that people just presumed. And now I really consider it a, um, how can I say this in a way that doesn't sound um, Christianese? Um, I really feel compelled to pray for people who are sick or really, really struggling, going through a very tough time, maybe physically or emotionally, whatever. And uh, I feel good when I do it. And I feel like it's important. And I've done it for a long time. And a lot of it started back then. And so when I prayed their words back to them, there were some moments when that happened that I didn't think about me. And I had spent up to that point a whole lot of time thinking about me. I still do a lot. And it was a very unusual experience to kind of almost be more present than I can ever recall, just for a matter of seconds. And so that that experience of being with people who were, um, my desire to serve them and to be with them was born out of my broken heart. Okay, so you can see the connections there. It's my dad's death, my broken heart. Here are some people 25 years later that I can be present with. Just no big deal. You know, just be present with them. Well, when that happened, then this kind of paradox, this mystery occurred, which was this really tightly wound, hard driven, hard charging lawyer who had to know the answer to everything, could breathe just a little deeper. And the emotional space was created, you know, in my heart and just in my soul to just, just not have to read 50 books or Google 500 hours a day on what I should do with my life. And this, this thing that we're talking about right now, even though I've written about it, it took me three years to write the book. I've talked about this a lot. I talked about it in my little TEDx talk. I 
This that we're talking about right now is very hard for people to understand. I find it the most challenging thing for people to understand what we're talking about right now. Because people will often say, well, why didn't you just become a chaplain? Doesn't that mean you're supposed to become a chaplain and just go, why didn't you go do that? Well, I don't know. All I can say is that I didn't feel that that's what it was going to be. And, and as I reflect on it, that experience was a bridge. That's all it was. It was a bridge. In fact, I, I, and this will sound morbid to some of your listeners, but I loved it so much walking into the hospital and getting my list of people to go see that I remember specifically praying that God would relieve me of that when it was time because I didn't want to even worship that, the feeling that I would get in doing this work. I, I wanted to be very careful about that. And so this experience was doing a number on me in a good way. And all I did was just listen. That's all I did. I didn't do anything. I didn't, I mean, I'm, <laughs> it was in many ways, all I did was just get out of the way, which is very unusual for me. And that that's it. That's all I did. And this is what happens. It's often just stepping back and breathing for a minute and the answers and and mysteries can sometimes come into better focus and they can even sometimes be revealed and that's what happened to me hey everybody we're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors after that we'll get back to the show do you want to make efficient use with your time now more than ever traveling hassle-free is harder to find AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card. It gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. One of the things that I was curious about is it seems like you were, and I know you were mature, maybe mid-40s, whatever that was at that time, but you talked about it, you know, being a five-year process and you talked about buying the building before you closed your practice down. Mm-hmm. You've also talked about being kind of a type A or hard charging mm-hmm. attorney. How were you able to almost compartmentalize that journey for five years? Because that's a long time. And I know I've heard you say this in your TED talk, you know, two thirds of people, essentially you're curious or questioning what they should be doing from a work standpoint, 55% of executives are disengaged. Like this is a, this is a question. If you have a real relationship or a real conversation with someone, the statistics verify life experience day in, day out. But even just from my own experience, it can create so much fear and anxiety. If you're born in a society where you feel like you need to go get your education, you need to go to college either you need to go get a job or start a company, whatever that looks like, control, 
Roth IRA, maybe other money if you can, control, rinse, repeat. And when you, your world starts to get rocked, your your soul, your, your spirit, your your being starts to become in tune with a spiritual relationship with a perfect creator, it can just, it can be a very scary place. And I know you would probably say, well, I didn't really figure it all out. I didn't, I didn't have this seven step process, but how are you able to kind of keep all the balls in the air, I guess, for those five years as you went through that season? Well, the first thing I would say is one word starts with an L and it's called Lexapro. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, my doctor, you know, when I had this panic attack, I thought heart attack, but it wasn't, you know, prescribed me to talk to a psychologist, which I did. And then she thought I needed to have him put me on Lexapro and it really worked for a while. And I was on and off of that for a while and um, haven't had to take an antidepressant in years, thankfully. But truthfully, you know, I think that, I mean, I, I was, the, I, I didn't have it all figured out. You're right. I mean, there, I did not have a seven step plan. I was at the beginning of the search, it was fun. So I will say I had to sort of not so much in compartmentalize, but I had to order my priorities. And one of my first priorities was to keep the lights on and to keep being able to feed my family. That meant keep trying cases, keep doing a good job for clients, keep my head in the game. And you want that if you're, if you are a client and in the need, in need of the services of a criminal defense lawyer and your freedom is at stake, you do not want your lawyer multitasking, you know, just kind of like you don't want your pilot doing that either. I mean, you want to know that you can depend on that person if you're, you know, going to maybe face prison for life or, or worse. And so I did that. And, and, and that was very hard, not in the beginning. I had to keep my family together. You know, Karen and I have been married for 33 years. And so I couldn't do much more than that. Uh, I, I wasn't capable because, like I said, in the beginning, it's fun. It's like, oh, hey, let's read, you know, Poe Bronson's book, What Should I Do With the Rest of My Life? Oh, that's really mm-hmm. cool. Um, you know, let's Google a bunch of stuff. Let's look at things, talk to people, look at franchises. And nothing was really triggering my inspiration or passion. And then it became, after a year or two of that, I was pretty desperate. And then that's when I probably really began to almost kind of grab at things and thinking, well, this must be it, or this must be it. And so what I would like to say about that time is I kept my practice together, my law practice. I kept my family together. I didn't do much else. And I did that volunteer work. And outwardly, you would, you know, talk to me or whatever, and you would think I was, you know, the epitome of success. <laughs> but the, the, the thing that I think people should hear me say and understand is it wasn't pretty. It wasn't, I did not have answers. I didn't have anything. I mean, I started going to the Abbey back then. John O'Donohue, my favorite poet philosopher, calls this period in our lives a threshold. And a threshold can be a couple of days or it can be a couple of decades or it can be a long time longer than that. But um, this is what that was for me. And, a, and thresholds can be dark. And it was, parts of it were very dark for me and very, um, 
kind of like, I don't think I can go on. I'm going to not end up finding the thing I should do. I'm just going to keep being a lawyer. I I guess, you know, I'll sort of resign myself and I think I'm feeling hopeless. But here's what I want to say about that is that no one asks to experience a dark night. No one signs up for that. But they are necessary, I think, that they are necessary for the evolution of a spiritually mature person. Mm. And I also think that a threshold that turns into a dark night can be a genesis point of creativity, of beauty, of, of joy. And I would even say that right now in this time of pandemic, you know, that I'm experiencing another one and have been for a couple of months. And, uh, but I have a whole other level of awareness now than I did those many years ago. And it doesn't make it less hard. It doesn't even really make it less painful. But what it does is I have a history. So I know that there will be light. And this is what the Paschal Mystery, again, I'm not a Catholic, but the Catholics uh, subscribe to this, this doctrine of the Paschal Mystery, which is a beautiful notion of death and resurrection and light and darkness and, and valley and mountaintop. And, and I am in the Paschal Mystery now. I was back then. And um, I can tell you right now that I am thankful for being in the Paschal Mystery. I would like to push a button and get out of it, to be honest. Like that show on the History Channel alone where those guys get a sat phone, you know, and they can just make one call, and boom, yeah. somebody's coming in on a helicopter or seaplane. <clears throat> I wouldn't mind doing that, you know. But you know what? This is all for the betterment of my, I don't want to say soul, it's for the betterment of my contribution to this world as a loving human being. So in that sense... I'm not going to push the button. I'm not going to call the sat phone. I'm going to work my way through it without a map. And that's what I'm doing now. One of the things that I've learned doing this podcast, I started it in late May. Every time I've seen someone that was quote unquote that I've had on my show, top of the craft, there was a fulfillment that they experienced by doing whatever they did, even if it was faith-based or non-faith-based, there always seemed to be this service aspect. And I mean, I have police director, college president, Hall of Fame football player, entrepreneurs like yourself, more people that were involved from a philanthropic standpoint, et cetera. So that theme is there and it's clear. But when you talk about your being, your soul, your spirit, your relationship with God, and you talk about the threshold, you talk about going back to your pain, I'm curious, why do you think it is that our fulfillment and our passion is contingent on our experience and our pain? And how is that a mandatory thing for us to serve and feel fulfillment? Why can that passion not be experienced or that value not be given off of something that we haven't experienced or suffered through? I think this is a, this that you describe is a pathway. And so I would say that 
it doesn't always have to be that way. But I think in the pathway of, let's call it, um, in the pathway towards spiritual maturity, that we need to experience those doorways, those pathways, in order to reach an understanding that we don't need those anymore, in order to experience non-duality. So once we can reach a place of understanding and awareness of the non-dual nature of our soul, then I think we will understand that we don't now need those pathways in order to um, achieve this understanding. However, before that place, I think these pathways, these doorways are necessary. And I quote Khalil Gibran a lot, um, who I think typifies this when he says that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. Right. And so when I went to the hospital, my sorrow was unmasked in a way that was pinpoint. It could not have been, if, if we were going to put a this that's very small point on the map and say on the map of Sean's broken heart, where can we pinpoint the place that can now become a place of joy where the sorrow can be unmasked. And there could not have been a better place for me to experience what Khalil Gibran is talking about and to unmask that sorrow to reveal joy. And so I don't think this is for everybody, believe me, because, I mean, it can't, it, it hurts. And if it doesn't hurt, you're not doing it right. <laughs> and so I talk to people all the time. One of my best friends, I'll never forget, he was like, I read your book. I've known it since high school. And he was like, you know, I don't know. I mean, I just, he's my age. And he said, I don't really think I've ever experienced what you're talking about when you say broken heart. And, you know, he was divorced and his kids were not. And I was like, Really? really? You're going to say that? Of course you have. Yes, you have. And so what I'm saying is, is that for some people who want to explore this in their lives for their understanding of what Joseph Campbell calls, you know, really beyond meaningful, he says what people want beyond that is they want to know that they're joyfully alive. Yeah. Well, if you want to know that you're joyfully alive, then you're going to need to do some kind of work like this and explore these things that you and I are talking about. And so that is what um, I have experienced, and not just once, but many times. However, I do believe, and I'm, I'm not in a place to report back yet, but I hope to one day be able to report back to you that I have reached um, an understanding, a greater understanding and awareness that to use your words, I don't need to experience that anymore in order to understand the non-dual nature of joy. But we know that grief and joy, you know, are sisters. I mean, they are. Grief and love are sisters. But we also know that ultimately, um, these are tools for our heart to learn these lessons and let the revelation happen and unfold in our lives in a way where we can truly experience this without having to think that we need a corollary of pain in order to achieve joy. And so 
I guess what I'm hearing you say and the conclusions I'm drawing off of the different people that you've quoted, if we are truly going to have joy that's connected to our spirit, to our being, to who we are individually, uniquely made in the image of God. And so if we are going to experience the joy to that level, there's no amount of earthly man-made reward that can tap into our being to that degree. And so that's where those two worlds become one. Is that what you're saying? Yes. There is no external object that will be the source of that joy. I'm 32. So just two things that stick out to me personally that I, that I love doing. One is meeting with people if they're very concerned from a financial standpoint with their business and they think that they might not make it and they're just very confused and they're not detached from the situation. I've been there before and there's a man that is still who I'm close with today. That was that for me. So I love doing that for other people. And the second thing is there's a tough period in my teenage and early twenties, just with some family stuff and and just some stuff, some choices I had made as well. And I just know the power of how the dark places that you can go mentally, when you question yourself, you question your abilities, you're way too um, dependent on external affirmation and approval, et cetera. And so to sit down to have lunch I mean, that's a deep sense of joy for me, but it's because of the freedom that I felt through somebody else that was detached. So everything that you said, it's like when you kind of process that through, you can verify it through your own life and it seems to play out that way. Yes, yes, exactly. It's, it's, you don't have to listen to me and, or someone else and believe it. As you say, experientially, you know it to be true. What you just described and what you have done is not hard. It's not hard. What it takes is the willingness to do it. That's it. I talk to people all the time. I used to. I mean, when I went to trade shows, people would come up and say, oh, man, I can't wait till we get a little bit bigger and we're going to do some of the stuff that you're doing. You know, we're going to profit share with farmers and we're going to do all that. And I say to them, why are you waiting? <laughs> what You can do it. You know, anybody can do these things that we're talking about. Anybody. Just like, I mean, like, how did you find this person that, or people? How did, you, how did you come across the people that you were saying that you helped? They came to me. Yeah, how did they know you? I mean, what, what I was... I spoke at a conference, and I was just really raw. I just didn't hold anything back. And a guy was shaking afterwards, and he says, hey, man, I, I really need your help. I need some time. And I was supposed to leave town that day, and we met, and then I flew down and, and met with him. Mm-hmm. That was one. And then as far as some of the other things... I think just by doing what I'm doing now. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, people reach out over email, et cetera, text, but, you know, they get your information over social media. But there's somebody here in where I live, Memphis, Tennessee, that same thing. And he just, I guess he heard the vulnerability. Yes, yes. Okay, that's it. So you were open. We Our default state is not open <laughs> as humans currently. Right. And so you had to have a willingness and a desire to be open. And whether that was in the words that you used, for example, in your conference or the words that you use now, you know, as you speak on your podcast, whether it's the tone of voice, whether it's your presence, just with no words that send signals, this is what I'm saying. So the, the willingness to be open is perhaps the hard part. Then when this person came up to you after the conference, your spending time to help him was really not the hard part. I mean, of course, you had to maybe readjust your travel schedule. 
But this is what I'm saying. So if people think that this pathway we're speaking of is somehow requires like this great philosophical understanding or religious understanding. No, it doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't require that at all. People ask me, I've, I've, I've been on a lot of podcasts and people ask me, they invariably ask me, well, what are some, what's, if you were just going to give one bit of advice, you know, to, and I say this all the time and I never tire of saying it. And that is this very simple idea of, do you know somebody who needs you? You, you, surely you know someone who needs you. Well, go help them. Go help them. Roll up your sleeves. You don't have to join a board of directors. You don't have to write a check. You don't have to just help them. Be present for them. This is what Gandhi was saying about if you want to find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others. You know, you don't have to read 10 books and join a thing to figure this out. You just have to have the willingness to do it. And then you're not doing it to just, you know, means ends thing. You're saying, I'm doing this with expecting nothing in return. Truly, it's a form of surrender. And that's hard for us in, the, in this day and age. Surrender is hard. How do you maintain that lifestyle? Because you've written a best-selling book. You were named a few years ago by Oprah, one of the 15 guys who are saving the world. I mean, it seems like you kind of put a lid on publicity and you could have a lot more if you wanted it. You could grow your company more if you wanted it. But how do you live with that humility and that service? Or has there ever been a temptation to kind of get a little bit bigger of a platform and kind of blow it wide open a little bit? Yes, of course, that temptation is there. Um, Oh, there are times when I wish, oh, gosh, I wish I sold more books or I wish that more people were impacted by the book and felt moved by it or I wish we sold more chocolate bars this month or, you know, of course. I mean, I, I, I experience all of those things. Father Richard Rohr, who I follow carefully, said one time that he prays for a humiliation every day. Oh, wow. And, and I, I don't do that, but, but I'm open to it. And um, I, I do remember times praying, Lord, if I get a humiliation today, could you please make this thing that I'm about to do not it? <laughs> but, 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 but what I'm, but, but what I'm saying is, is that remember everything I'm talking about is aspirational. So I can only authentically answer your questions or talk to you about some place that I've been. I can't really authentically tell you about some place I want to go. I can tell you I want to be there, but what I can say is there are times in my life, not all times, but there are times in my life in which I feel as though I am uplifted by something, and I can't describe it, but one way of describing it would be peace, and it doesn't mean that I don't want, it doesn't mean that I'm not driven, it just means that I have a peace sometimes. And so that is what I surrender to when it comes to me wanting to get bigger or become more known. My true heart is that I want to become more and more aware of my true self, as Thomas Merton would say. And I want to know him better. I want to recognize him more. And when I recognize him more, I will, and, and I see greater revelations of my true self, I will then see Christ. 
more and better, hidden in God. With me hidden and nestled under the wing, so to speak, of my true self. That's what I want. That's, that, that's a lot. That's a whole lot. But that's what I want. And I want, I want this, you know, more than anything, really. So it's my expression. It's my prayer. And so that means that there are times when I, I say to myself, oh, man, why didn't the New York Times pick our chocolate or instead of these other 10? And I'm just like anybody else. I'm like, oh, man, that is a bummer. Why didn't we win that award? But then I'm fairly quickly reminded that I've surrendered to something else. And it's okay. It's okay. And I'm, I'm surrendered to that as a practice. And so I will allow myself to be guided in a way that won't be, um, look, I mean, you've heard me say it. I'm in a tough spot right now. I mean, I'm in kind of a dark place and it's not a new spot for me, but it can be intense. And I mean, I can't focus on why didn't I win that award or why weren't we in the New York times, whatever, when I'm in the dark, you know, looking for, I can't even see my hand on some days. Now I don't want to send the wrong impression. I'm not, but, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, is that I'm, I'm so prayerful about it and I'm so, I'm doing a lot of work on it that I don't have time to think about why I wasn't in the New York times or that's like this. It's way far away from me because I've surrendered to another kind of practice. And that is, it's taking me somewhere. I'm not taking it. It's taking me. Right. And I, I, I let that happen. Well, it's what I heard you describe is a pursuit of decreasing humility, God's glory and submission and surrender. And so I felt like you were very honest the way that you talked about how to be uh, earlier telling me, but you kind of got two roads. And if you're going to go the road that you've talked about, the New York Times or whatever, it's just it's just another dopamine hit or another pride yes. hit. And, and yes. what I feel like I'm hearing you say is there's just no space for that. And when there is space through God's goodness, it, it just, you keep getting pulled in the right direction, I guess. Right. Yes, exactly. Yes. Through God's goodness. Um, grace. It's grace. I pray for grace and it's not by something that I can do to be more valuable in the eyes of God. It's grace. And that's why now I don't get tricked into thinking I need to do some other program or, you know, start another social justice initiative in order to be more valuable as a human in the eyes of God. I don't have to do that. That's, I don't. I don't have to do that. I've heard you say this, and it resonated deeply, but you've said broken hearts don't fit in with calendar time. I've heard you say that before. Well, that's true. And, and um, our broken hearts and our sorrow are not bound by time and space. So when, for example, we talk about something that happened in the past, that is the source of our sorrow, what is the past? I mean, what, what is that? I mean, it's, it, you know, we could talk about it. Is it a year? Yes, it could be a year and it's a, maybe a period of years and time, but your body and your soul don't really know that. In other words, your soul thinks that it was two seconds ago. 
I just don't believe that these things that happen to us, these objective external things that happen to us and that we experience that in some cases can be truly sorrowful. I think that they're right there. They're literally not bound by any kind of calendar or time or space. And they're accessible to us because they're part of our body. They're part of our mind, body, and soul. What got me thinking about this is like last night, for example, I got together with somebody that I used to do some business with. And we got together for a couple hours and we had no business responsibilities to talk about. It was all about him and me and we connected, et cetera. But when you're working together with someone, it seems to be, be very complicated when you try to express and have an interest in the genuine interest of that human being, but then also have things that you're at least trying to accomplish and et cetera. And I'm curious when you start something mm-hmm. and you know that that organization or that entity needs to produce to some degree at a certain level for it to be successful and for it to have the impact that you want, how do you lead and work with people while also knowing at the end of the day, it's not just about business. It's not just about money and the people that are involved, the people that have responsibilities that report to mm. you have mm. broken hearts too that don't fit calendar time. Mm-hmm. So from a relationship standpoint, how do you approach that? I think that um, sometimes it depends, you know, for example, I think it depends um, if the person is an employee and in any one of those organizations, then I have a responsibility to remember in the back of my mind, what you just said, that this person is also healing and trying to heal their own broken heart in their own way. But I'm careful to not probe that. Um, I don't do that. I'm, I'm, I don't try to be the counselor in chief um, when it comes to that relationship. And what I try to do is just lead by example. I'm very open about these things that we're talking about. And so it's easy for someone that I work with to see what I do and what I say, and do those things match up? And have I, am I a person who has built a history of doing what I say I'm going to do and behaving in, a, in that way, which in turn builds up trust? It's easy to say something as a leader. It's easy to write a memo and say, this is how it's going to be. It's much more challenging to build a character state. And this is what we're doing with our product. So when I told you we pay farmers this amount of money and, you know, look at this, uh, look at this transparency report, doing that for one year is fine. But what, what we're doing is we're, we're unfolding this as we go so that someone, anyone can look at it. And if they've been connected to us over time, then there's this character state of trust that is developed because we've been doing it for 14 years. You know, we were doing it for four years and then we were doing it for 10 years and now we're doing it for 14 years. And I think that this is important because in the same way that people who work with me or work for me um, in any of those organizations that you said, 
they can see for themselves and make their own determination about this character state of trust. Now, if the person that we're speaking of maybe perhaps were uh, peer-to-peer with me in these organizations, then I might be more willing to offer some coaching advice, even though I'm not a coach, and make sure that I'm very sensitive to their own broken hearts, and I might be more responsive and more more direct than I would be if it wasn't peer-to-peer, because I just want to be careful that I'm not intruding on someone else's private experience. So this working with me is not like everybody sits in a circle every day and shares, you know, in support group style. It's not (laughs) like that. Um, Although that might actually be a good thing. Um, But uh, because we do use support group um, method at Lost and Found at the Grief Center, and I, I myself am a facilitator in these groups, and I've been you know, with teen groups for 10 years now. Uh, and but and it is a very uh, proven model, but we wouldn't use that in, in business. And so, you know, and this is a good question that's coming up. Let's take, um, for example, right now, we have customers, some of them who own nice specialty food stores around the country. And um, let's say we had a customer that wasn't really that pleasant to deal with before COVID. But we, you know, we we've had a long relationship, and it's okay. You know, we can deal with disgruntled—not even disgruntled, but just challenging customers. Let's say, um, and anyone who's listening who has a business, <laughs> we could talk for maybe an entire podcast series about challenging customers. But when you overlay COVID on top of a challenging customer, it's too much, you know. And what ends up happening is these customers can express themselves in a way that is unacceptable, you know, mean, raising their voice, yelling, and just rude. And so what I've talked to our team about recently is to please remember that there's a stress out there that is both individual and collective. And it is manifesting itself in ways that will surprise us and in some ways that won't surprise us. But we need to be alert for people who are suffering, but that express it in ways that is not acceptable to us so that we can give them a little grace. My brother calls it bumper rim, but uh, which is a nice way of putting it, but it's, it's grace. So... That's another way of answering your question, because um, if we can be super mindful, I mean, hyper mindful of the sort of undercurrent of everything right now, on top of people's already pre-existing heartbroken condition, then we must be members of the body that will be ready to receive these you know, not pleasant customers, for example, not, we're not going to let them, you know, cuss people out. And I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, way, way over the top, but we're going to give people some bumper room. And, and, And I think we're called to do that. And the only way we can do it is if we're aware that it's happening and that it's going to happen. And, you know, pain triggers pain. And so what we're finding is that, that folks who, 
thought that their broken heart was put in another room and the door was locked are now finding that that's impossible, that the broken heart that they thought was in the room and the door was locked is now open and it's making its way into our lives, whether we like it or not. And it's being triggered by this crisis that we find ourselves in and it's massive. And so we as business people, I think, have a responsibility to be aware of it and to be part of the solution in ways that we could never have imagined even two years ago. How do you think about something I've heard you say before where you said imperfections are beautiful in their own right? And just to say back to you what I've heard throughout our time is you're in this own season of yours of you're working through things and you're trying to figure things out and you can't, it's hard to see from what I heard you say, it's hard to see your hand in front of your face. You've talked about how you were there 18 years ago or whatever it was exactly talking about. Now we, we've talked about COVID. We've talked about the complexity. We've talked obviously the pain that's there just from the pandemic itself, but then supply and demand and logistics and then talking about shifts and arranging. And, but I experience you being very courageous and very bold in still sticking to the core foundation that you live off of and that you wrote about. So I'm curious how you have been able, like even in a season like this, to still understand the imperfections, to still understand the challenges that just keep popping up, but to still live with this sense of grace and humility and not lose hope. The design principle, Wabi Sabi, is one of imperfection and it's of course wabi-sabi is japanese and the japanese have an entire art form built around this as do many native american cultures and in your own design work sam i'm sure that you have um, deployed the these ideas of imperfection in your work to highlight the beauty of the imperfection itself. Right. And uh, it's, it's a design philosophy, but it's also a life philosophy. So I think the, the answer to your question for me personally right now is that I do some practical things to sustain. And one of them is, as I mentioned before, is I have a routine that is, some would say is a ritual. I don't think ritual is bad. Uh, I remember growing up as an Episcopalian. I, you know, I was confirmed in the church and I was an acolyte. And I remember thinking as a young person that this is all ritual and why do we do this? And why do we genuflect? And why do we, it doesn't mean anything to me. The Nicene Creed, I can say it backwards, doesn't matter, you know, but as a, as an old guy, it's taken on a complete new meaning for me. And so the ritual, the rhythm, the words, and the intention have taken on a completely elevated meaning that they didn't when I was young. So that's one. Another thing is I have a few really, really, really good friends. And during this time, I have reached out to them and made certain that it was permissible for me to be open and express my need for help. Wow. And... To, and to make sure that they w were willing to receive that. <laughs> and that has been just an amazing support for me. 
The other thing is I started back into weekly therapy um, just on the telephone. And I haven't done that in a long time. And I've, I've been doing that now for about 12 weeks. And that has really been a help. So these are, you know, very practical things. But um, I, I also would say, too, that I, I return to my roots of spiritual practice, spiritual reading. So, for example, one of the most challenging books that I've ever read in my path is called The Joy of Full Surrender by Jean-Pierre de Cassade. It's a skinny little book translated from French to English. He was a monk in the 18th century. And the entire book really is about surrender. Every other sentence is really challenging. I mean, this is not an appetizer. I mean, this is a full on, you know, steak that you've really got to work at. And it's, it's hard and it's sometimes unpleasant, but I, for whatever reason, this, the words in this book have been a comfort to me. And as is a lot of Thomas Merton, a lot of Thomas Merton is a place of, of refuge for me. Um, the sign of Jonas, um, is, is, is I would put that, or Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander and New Seeds of Contemplation. These are places of comfort for me. And I recognize that the words can have a balming quality about them. And as I would say, John O'Donohue, I would put him in that category, poet philosopher John O'Donohue, who died in 2008, and Walking in Wonder is a great book, and as are all of his books, but I read them not so much now for insight, because I've read them so many times, I read them because they will operate as kind of like a a blanket for me, you know, they they will warm me just by reading them, and be comforting to me. And yes, it's true that in all of those authors that I just mentioned, I do see new things each time I, I, I read it. I'm also spending a lot of time recently in the book of John, um, which I've read many times. But uh, again, it's, of course, um, the veil can be lifted for us, I believe, by any, any work of beauty, art, literature, music or just everyday life. And so these are the things that I would say are in my safe harbor. I'm I'm in a therapy group that meets every week and it's with six, seven other men. We've been doing it for about five years with a licensed therapist. And Mm. the most impactful thing that I've experienced like in this life through other people is meeting with people every week in their forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies that where their life looks differently in their own way Some people work with the church. Some people are business people. Some people work for other companies. And the level of money, the level of everything is different. But nobody is going through without things that are hurting, without things that they're wrestling with, without things that they've recovered from, without things that, um, I mean, it just, that's the way it is. And hearing you flesh that out, I mean, that's that's the self-help, if there Mm -hmm. is. 
(laughs) And and there's no other way that I I believe to get through it than to look for truth and and then to also be encouraged and inspired by people that have been courageous and honest like yourself that talk about it. And, you know, when you're in the, when you're in the valley and you hear someone else talk about when they were in the valley, that means more than any other inspirational rah-rah speech ever just to, to keep going and keep, like you said earlier, during that five-year period, try to get through the day, take care of your family and uh-huh. repeat. And then, uh-huh. but then it's going to mean something to somebody else. I mean, we're coming full circle and didn't even try to do that. So thank you for just being so honest. It was beautiful. Sure. I mean, this is, this is our calling. Um, this is where we recognize that we are one. This is the place of um, recognition and, and sight and where, where the mystery in some cases deepens, but in other cases it is revelatory. And that is that we're here for each other. And, and the reason is because we are each other and we can find ways to express it and we can also be forced into that expression. Um, and I think, you know, whether we're going to wrestle and resist is a choice. And for me, my prayer is that I will let go, you know, and as, as Jean-Pierre de Cassade would say, that I would surrender. I even try to image myself in surrender. A lot of people think, especially business people think surrender. Oh, that's weak. That's bad. Who wants to give up? Who wants to, well, I've let that go a long time ago. Uh, Cause I, that, that's, that's my, my hope, you know? And so I image myself you know, like this, not at church like this. Cause I don't, I'm an Episcopalian. We don't do that. But, <laughs> but, um, but I image myself like this where I'm, what was his name in Titanic? Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. You want yeah. drowning at the end? I mean, that's kind of how I see myself, you know. And I pray that I can be in this posture of just let me go, you know, and uh, let it happen to me, and trust that my soul was created to know what to do. Not me, not my <laughs> mind, you know, but but my soul as created by God is pre-programmed to know what to do. I just need to get out of the way. And so that is my daily prayer, truly. But even with the surrender and even with the reality of the way that you've shared just now, how do you think about the things for the future that where there's like a, I would argue a good hope or a good, there's a goodness to plans, maybe not, with things rolling out exactly the way that that plan goes, but the the wisdom that you have or the creativity that you have or the ability to have a vision, et cetera. So like in a season like now through this, is there anything in particular that you're thinking about for the next 10 years from either a life standpoint, from a philanthropy standpoint, or from a business standpoint where you're still, you kind of know where the North Star is? Well, sure. I mean, we're, we are very deeply involved in the village in Tanzania where we buy beans and we opened a preschool in January that we built and the farmers themselves are managing. And, and uh, so I'm working a lot on that. And I, I, I definitely, you know, am listening to farmers about how they would like it to be over the next 10 years. And many of our organizations contemplate 
what I call in the book vision of greatness. And I think those are important. The longer out that we can go with those, I think the, the more productive they can be. And so it's essentially a narrative story. You know, it's not a strategic plan with bullet points that comes later, but first comes the story and the story in narrative detail 10 years out is absolutely something that I work on with all of the projects and organizations that I'm working on. And I will say that there is some wisdom in continuing to dream the story now but I also think there's some benefit to, on the other hand, at the same time, uh, um, recognize that, you know, we're in a foxhole and we have incoming <laughs> and we need to, you know, we need to just, you know, stay alive and find a place to get our food and go to the bathroom and, and uh, you know, just, just get through it. But, but I also think it can be a time of, of beautiful and great creativity. And so that's what, that's what we're doing for me personally, you know, yeah, I mean, I have things that I want to do, but recall, you know, that I want to live a life of being inserted by doing and not a life of doing inserted by being. And so if that's true, then I need to be very, very careful and on guard about making sure that I can establish my default position of being as primary and doing as secondary. So we're this, you know, we're we are we're in a trap uh, in, on this planet of 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 sort of thinking by the condition of our culture that we have to be doing in order to survive. And it's true, we do. We have certain things we need to do to get through the day and provide and and uh, and have sustenance. And of course, but I want to be part of getting out of this trap. Part of it is, and this is another thing I write about in the book, and I think the title of the chapter is, How Much is Enough? Yeah. And this has to do with something that came straight out of the rule of Benedict and my time at the Abbey, and really monasteries around the world, and not just and not just um, Christian monasteries, I might add, Buddhist monasteries as, as well. But the question is really based on what is known as the sufficiency economy. And this very simple question for those communities is, what do we need? That is, the found, that is the foundation upon which they base their, quote, business plans, which is, you know, how many fruitcakes do we need to make in order to, to be sufficient? And the, the, the way that businesses would ask that question is, how much sales is enough? Not for the next 10 years, but how much is, how much is enough for next year and the next year? How many Instagram likes is enough? You know, these are questions that are obviously moving targets, but if we can just ask the question, then we are being pointed in the right direction. And um, so I think these things are very important for us to discuss as businesses and organizations and how much is enough. And it can really help us because we'll know when we're there <laughs> and we'll know that as the monks, I think very clearly provide an example of what is primary, you know, and what is secondary? So that's kind of where I am right now. I'm not sure I answered your question. Uh, for me, you know, just I have new projects that I'm working on related to grief um, that I'm, I'm working on. And um, the chocolate factory is going good. We don't have big plans to grow it. I don't have an investment partner. I don't want one. <laughs> and I don't have very much debt at all on it. But, you know, I do have some things. I've, 
I would like to own some sheep. Why? I don't know. I don't know how to take care of sheep, but I'm very interested in it. And I've been researching sheep for the last five years. Can they live in Missouri? Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, They sure can. And, and um, I have 43 acres. I'm looking at it right now. And, um, and a stream. And yes, exactly. And a spring fed Creek. So, I mean, it'd be great. I only have one obstacle and that is my wife says no. (laughs) And so even though she was a labor and delivery nurse, I'm like, come on, you can help me deliver little baby lambs. She said, no, no, I don't think so. Because I know exactly what's going to happen when you're in the Amazon or wherever else you're going to go. I'll be here taking care of the sheep. Yeah. Anyway, but, but I think hopefully we'll come to a compromise and I saw a video on Oprah Oh gosh, it's been probably five or six, maybe more years ago, and uh, made by the same couple that, that that released a movie this last year called Big Little Farm, and the sheep are on that video. But they did a short video, like a you know ten minute video with these sheep, like I said years ago, and I was just completely enamored by this idea of raising sheep. Uh, for me, I would want to do it for the wool. I don't want to do it for meat. Yeah, but. I've got uh, a bloodhound dog if you need to borrow him at some point to help you find anything on your 40 acres. That's good. You mean a bloodhound like best in show, that kind of bloodhound? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that is awesome. And then my dad just got one. Uh, He's one years old. So now we have two. So we're starting our own like search and rescue unit. (laughs) That's awesome. I love it. I love it. And, of course, in Tennessee, right? Yep, Memphis. That's where it's going to happen. That's awesome. Yeah. So anyway, that's probably a very, very long way to not directly answer your question, but it's hard for type A's, but I do believe that Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God is one that we could use a little more of and uh, me, you know, me included. So that's, that's kind of where I am. That is great. Such an encouragement and such a real life testimony about surrender and being there before rebirth and then just the process of it. It's so countercultural. Thank you, Sean, so much. Such a privilege to be with you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sam. For more information, go to drivenbypodcast.com and subscribe to our weekly email list. Check out my show on Twitter, Instagram, and all other platforms at Sam P. Coates. If you like the show, spread the word and tell a friend and leave a review. This really does help.